0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers.
1: You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony.
2: I had a couple of questions that uh, just to open up that... Um I want to ask both these authors, uh, who have only given us a little smidgen of longer works. And um, particularly in terms of you, Jim, I read one one time you talked about, uh, you call, uh, you write these, uh, what's it called, Sigma Force? Right. Thrillers, which happen all over the world, which are, you know, it seems to be there's, there's a lot of uh, geographical and cultural specificity that goes into them. And yet one time you described um, doing research as, I think you called it, the most insidious form of procrastination. <laughs> uh, what exactly do you mean by that? And how do you how do you research your books?
1: Well, see, I, I've set myself a, a limit nowadays when I'm doing research. I, I can only research for 90 days. On the 91st day, I actually have to start writing. Uh, otherwise, I just keep researching. And I convince myself I'm still working. Uh, you know, so I'll, you know, read articles and read books and nothing ever gets written. I just keep researching and researching, and it got really really out of hand. So finally I said, okay, I'm allowed to research for 90 days and the 91st day I actually have to write. And another question I get asked is, have I been to all those geographic locations that I've, I've written about? Uh, I generally don't travel for research. I've spoken to a lot of thriller writers that you know, go, I'm going to write a story and actually just speaking to her, a thriller writer called uh, Diane uh, C- Karen Diane. And she's writing a, 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 a Volcanic thrillers. So she's going to go to Chile and do some investigation. I generally don't do that. I generally don't have time to, to, to travel and do that. So what I do is I just, I just travel for fun, and I collect a bunch of notes and take a lot of pictures and I generally journal when I'm traveling and I just file it away. And so whenever I'm going to take a story and take you know place a story somewhere, I just pull out all that information and, and just you know call from it. So I've probably been to maybe sixty-five to seventy percent of the places I travel uh, write about, but otherwise everything else is just a lot of research.
2: Cool. Well, in other words, um, what, what you're saying reminds me a little bit of that story about uh, Dustin Hoffman did a film with Laurence Olivier once. I think it was Marathon Band. And Hoffman is a uh, method actor, and he came in, he was playing this crazy guy. And so he shows up on the set, and he looks terrible, and Olivier asked him, he said, uh, he said, what's the matter with you? And he says, I've been up for three days. I'm trying to get into this part. I've been up walking the streets and, you know, uh, playing like I'm a homeless guy. And Olivier looked at him real funny. And he said, why don't you just act? <laughs> <laughs> My question for you, Frank, is I, I'm not sure where this story is going, but you talk about it's God's way of cleansing the earth is sort of the, what the Aaron boys' um, role is.
0: The young boy's role is exactly that to uh, take any race to correct a mistake
2: ah, so he corrects individual mistakes, so it's not like noah's ark he's not going
0: no 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 no, no 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 okay, everybody man <laughs> and uh, uh the gimmick is that uh um uh, a few people want uh, a reporter, Salma, whom I've mentioned, and the reporter, Brian, and the, uh, uh, an FBI guy find out what is going on and that uh, the errand boy, namely Jason, has something that can do this. And um, the idea is to get hold of the Ellen boy before he can do, do something fatal.
2: And he keeps it in a mason jar. Is that what's in the mason jar?
0: I ain't going to tell you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: wrote a th- I wrote a fantasy once about a magic stuff in a mason jar. No, let me put it this way. Portion.
0: That's what you're supposed to think.
2: All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, now, you've, ri- you've written also a lot of nonfiction. Is that correct? A lot of what? Nonfiction. Uh, fair amount, yeah. Which do you find the
0: easiest? What comes easiest to you? Oh, uh, most of my nonfiction has been first person. Um, the uh, the Dark Beyond the Stars was first person. But that's fiction. For me, first person is immensely easier. Uh, the nonfiction, oh Christ. The, I, I've written short articles and stuff like that, none of which are notable. But uh, the one that is notable is uh, one uh, an article about Harvey Milk, and um, uh, it's about what was the gay situation in the United States before Harvey. Then it covers Harvey's uh, Harvey's life, Harvey's death, the trial and the, uh, the the riots that uh, followed. Um, there's a fellow here from NPR or something who I- interviewed me on that. And uh, that was, uh, it was a labor of love to write it and it was difficult to write because of that. On the other hand, it was easy to write because it meant so much to me. The words came very easy.
2: Well, if you were Milk's screenwriter, does that mean that the um, some of the speeches he gave in uh, that uh, Sean Penn gave, gave in the movie were actually uh, some of the speeches that you'd written for him?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? Uh, I was Harvey's... Uh, <laughs> uh, um, a lot of people wrote speeches for Harvey. I shouldn't say a lot, but some of us did. I was a primary uh, speechwriter. Um, I was up in the... Up in Red Rock Way, otherwise known as Pneumonia Heights. And Scorch and I had separate uh, separate apartments up there, and we were working on uh, um, The Glass Inferno, which became half of the movie, blah, blah. And I used to walk down to uh, the castle for breakfast, and Javier's uh, little camera shop and he had a little black dog out front that would, as I told the guy, uh, it would hump anything that was warm in that <laughs> and that uh, wriggled, and I fell into a conversation with Harvey, and Harvey asked me if I wanted to write speeches for him. Well, I had been involved in uh, gay living Chicago at the same time I was the Playboy advisor. It seems like there's cross purposes, there, <laughs> but, uh, that's the way it was, and um, so I said, "Yeah, sure. You know, I get to meet people." Make friends, blah blah, and that's where it started. But I never, ever considered that the speeches, the speeches I wrote for Harvey were work. You know, dash me off a speech. I had no idea that I was writing literature or anything close to it. And uh, Harvey's most famous speech was uh, the Hope Speech, um, and. I, re- I re-read it. Randy Schultz has a, uh, I think you can get it in paperback now, he is a biography of um, uh, Harvey. Oh yeah, at the end ends- of it, he reprints the entire Hope speech, and the closest I can come is I recognize some of the lines, but uh, I don't remember the whole thing. On the other hand, uh, I also wrote a speech for Harvey which ended up uh, he recites what is uh, written on the base of the Statue of Liberty. That one I had to look up in Bartlett's quotation, and that's (laughs) why I remembered it. And um, in the movie, uh, Sean Penn delivers it from the steps of uh, City Hall. And I'm in the background uh, peeing in my pants because uh, (laughs) I'm thrilled.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I would think. Have you... Now... Uh, Jim, you got into writing through, you're actually a, trained as a, a, a veterinarian, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And and did you practice before you got into writing, or how, did you segue into it, or <coughs> you know, how I, did that work?
1: You know, I was sort of always the storyteller of the family. I had three brothers and three six three sisters. Um, it's what my mom called the liar of the family. <laughs> I was always seeing what stories I could tell to terrorize my brothers and sisters. And... Uh, but I never thought you could make a career out of it. So uh, you know, I, I loved animals. I loved science. I loved medicine. So I career tracked to be a veterinarian. Uh, but I still remember when I was uh, doing a uh, night shift at the emergency clinic at the, in the at the veterinary hospital in the University of Missouri Columbia. I uh, had a you know a, a wall of cages with animals I was supposed to be monitoring, and I was writing a science fiction story. Well in between checking temperatures and checking pulse rates so you know part of me always wanted to write and a part of me loved being a vet and when i graduated from vet school I, you know I, it was very busy you have to carry the beeper around and and you know do the the war shit shifts <laughs> well there was some of the other stuff too but that's <laughs> that's kind of that's, that's kennel work and uh so I, I never thought you could really make a career as a writing as a writer. So I I was you know, it was just a hobby. I would write on the side a little bit and tried to, wrote a bunch of short fiction that never got never got sold. And uh well actually I got I one, one piece uh the very first piece of fiction I ever sold was to a small press magazine. It was a sort of a cautionary tale on why you shouldn't buy a Christmas puppy. because um, a lot of uh, right after Christmas a lot of uh dogs end up uh being dumped at the pound, uh because people really don't want those dogs. And uh it's a tear-jerking story it brings, so it's a, a brings a, story oh yeah oh yeah no it's it take it was, it was point of view of, a, of the, the puppy being bought and it's a tragic story and everybody cries at the end of it it's cautionary <laughs> and uh so i sold that so you know, it was a small press magazine it was one of those uh, magazines where they didn't pay you money they just gave you free copies you know so free to me copies. that that was a to me was a sale it was a barter you know yeah i'm gonna give you a copy you give me your story it's on the sale column you know so i told everybody you know my mom my dad my brothers and sisters all my clients uh, i'm being published i'm a published author and got a you know a frame to put the magazine in when it arrives and hang it on the shelf what the magazine? it's called the wretched truth it's sort of a vegetarian a- anti you know a uh, 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 very you know pro-animal book or magazine and so uh You know, the magazine finally arrived, and it's basically mimeographed sheets of paper folded in half, (laughs) punch-holed, and tied with yarn. (laughs) That's framed and hanging in my room. And believe me, every query letter I sent out when I was getting published, I you know, published in the wretched truth, because I'm pretty sure no one in New York actually subscribes to something that comes mimeographed and punch-holed and tied with yarn.
2: Well, you were lucky today. It would have been a webzine. You did nothing to frame.
1: That's true. <laughs> I have physical evidence of that.
2: That's right. So that was your first sale. And your first sale was a science fiction story. That's correct?
0: Uh, yeah. The one that Fred Poe I I, I, and, uh, I was an old-time science fiction fan. Right, because you Naturally, kind of segued
2: in from... fan. You were actually a fan before you were a writer.
0: Oh, yeah. I even... Um, good God, I was going to put out a fan scene... Uh, uh, I forget the name of it. Uh, I did a cover for Les Zombie* on uh, a spray gun cover, six different colors. So you're as an artist,
2: you're an artist also.
0: I was back then. All right. All right, all right. <laughs> but uh, then, uh, in uh, a guy named uh, Oliver Sury, who had about four or five stories in. Uh, 1938 is sounding. Uh, essentially, he and Bob Tucker and Paul Anderson taught me how to write. Each one of them contributed something. And my only uh, one, one of my dearest memories was I had taken this one story. One summer I wrote it, I showed it to Ali, uh, he criticized it, I rewrote it, I showed it to Ali criticized, it, blah blah blah. And after about six rewrites, it was like stepping across a crack in the sidewalk. On one side, I was an amateur. On the other side, I was a professional writer. Not a very good one at that time.
2: So what did you learn from him that made the crack?
0: Oh, God. I, I could say everything, but that's not really answering your question. To answer your question would be a little bit more involved. I mean, if you're gonna tell a story, uh, it's like making a movie. Only you're the director, you're the set designer, you're the, uh, uh, the dialogue coach, you are the actor. Uh, for me, when I write a story, whether it's short or long, I run a all in my head. And what I do is I put down what I see on paper. There's no other way I can describe it. Other people have other ways, but uh, again, if if you read anything I've written, you'll be able to visualize it because I had to visualize it. I, 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 I am on paper, I'm not a conceptual guy.
2: So did they give you that, or did you come to them with that? Did you already have that way of going about it? No. Or
0: they sort of edged you into it? Uh, Correct. Uh, I got edged into it. I learned how to deal with uh, character and dialogue, and primarily plot. Uh, You know, what happens when. Uh, You gotta have a beginning, you gotta have a middle, and you gotta have an end, and the middle is always the toughest but I don't think I've ever written a story where I didn't know how it was going to end before I wrote the beginning. It's like, uh, you know, there are many roads that lead to Rome, but you sure as hell better know where you're going.
2: It's gotta be Rome.
0: Yeah, it's gotta be Rome, (laughs) yeah.
2: How about you, how do you go about it? Do you, uh, well, the first question I wanna ask, did you, I mean, you went to this writers conference you're talking about, but that's not where you, workshop stuff did, did you were you in writing classes or you workshopped or did the read books on it or did you just kind of
1: I've had no formal training in in, in writing which if you're reading my books I think you'll you would agree uh <laughs> It was all self-taught. It was, uh, belonged to a critique group in Sacramento. It's basically I've been with the same group, still with the group. I'm meeting them this Monday. Uh, it, all my w- stuff goes through that group. Uh, they tear it apart. They have no respect for me. I think they should respect me, but they don't. Um, well,
2: that's a help. I mean, that's,
3: that's – that's it, It's vital. Not, I, 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 I mean, hope,
1: that, hope that group never disband, dis, uh, disbands because I think they're vital to, to keeping me uh, – Cause I try to cheat too often. Like this is good enough, and they're going, this is crap. So you and came so and I have, have to go back good, and do a good. Right no, no. Oh, when there, I was with the group when I started with the, the short fiction. I was with the group for three years. Uh, they read all the short fiction, and tackled my first novel. Where I actually started to write my first novel was I submitted a story to Marion Zimmer Bradley's. Uh, Fantasy magazine, right. and she was kind enough to send a personal response back, which I thought was nice. And basically, she was saying, you know, I fundamentally don't think you are a short fiction writer. Uh, just reading your story, I, have a f- I think you, th- I think your mindset is more long term, long, you know, long set, big, big picture. Uh, I think she's basically a polite way of saying, don't send me anything else. Uh, but I took it to heart. And thought, well, maybe she's right, because I don't read a lot of science uh, short fiction. I have a tendency to read more novels, and so I think my mind is wired a little bit towards the the, the bigger picture story, and so I decided to stop writing the short fiction and tackle my first novel, which was sub and ended up selling, so I think Marion Zimmer Bradley was quite correct, so I definitely appreciate that input. Um, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> uh,
2: my question was, did you, uh, I didn't mean formal training, but in, in the sense of of, I mean, a lot of people learn to write just by reading, you know, and they somehow absorb it. I firmly believe that. Yep. But then, uh, then sometimes people can sharpen up some of those skills by separating out, you know, how do you do characterization and dialogue. And that's what a writer's group does. So, yeah, so that, definitely. That, uh, that's a way of kind of honing things.
1: Like a question I often get asked on the road is, you know, what's your one piece of advice you can, you can give to – People out there that, that want to, you know, cross that bridge from being a successful for being a, a hobbyist to a professional writer, and my answer is, as there's the old adage, write every day, which I think is important. You have to practice your craft. You have to you know, learn those skills. But like I said, I had no formal training. Where I got my training was from reading, and so I always add the caveat: you, know, you should you should write every day, but you should read every night, uh, uh-huh. because whatever problem you have with dialogue, or if you have with description, or how to introduce a character when they first walk onto stage. Whatever problems you're having with your writing day that day, whatever you read that night, you're going to see an example of how they do that. And so if you just keep doing that, writing every day and reading every night, I think your, your, your prose look at it, uh, stronger and stronger.
2: What do you think?
0: Uh, well, uh, I He's go along crap. With pretty much everything that's been said at the table here, but uh, by God, you, you can't write if you don't read. Um, It's uh, a good deal of writing is monkey see, monkey do. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, uh, i tried twice in my life, I once told Bob Heinlein this and his wife could have strangled me. Um, There were two authors that amazed me with their ability to uh, conjure up images on paper and get across attitudes and all of that. One was Elmore Leonard. Uh, And the other one was Bob Heinlein. In both cases, uh, and this is a confession to God, uh, I sat down and copied out a couple of pages just to see what they looked like Mm -hmm. in typescript, double spaced like they were part of a manuscript. I wanted Ah. to see how did they do it. Uh, It taught me absolutely nothing at all. (laughs) Uh, Once I did that, uh, it's like learning a magician's trick. Uh, once you know how it's done, you know, you can't go back into the conjurer's tent. <laughs> and uh, Heinlein, uh, Heinlein uh, just evaded me as to how he did it. Uh, Leonard was, uh, Leonard could do in two pages what it takes Stephen King 20. And I'm not knocking King, it's just that No, he's a different Leonard moderator. was the master of uh, the Compression, yeah. Yeah, concise prose.
1: I mean, it's similar. I mean, definitely monkey see, monkey do. When I was writing s- sub training, that first novel about the five characters drop two miles underneath the earth, throwing some monsters and shake my underground telepathic marsupial creature story. Um, not I didn't. Story. I didn't know how to structure a novel. Uh, I didn't know. A, you know, I had never written. I'd been practicing short fiction. I Didn't know how to. You know, how to pace a, a full length novel out. So I just pulled down Jurassic Park. I thought this is sort of. I'm throwing. You know, I have basically dinosaurs underground eating people. So I thought, well, here's Michael Crichton's, you know, Jurassic Park's a great book. Love that book. Uh, you know, when does he? When does the first murder occur? When do you first see the dinosaur? When did the first time you see the villain c- come on stage? And I sort of, p- sort of plotted out where these things occurred. You know, rather than having to reinvent the wheel and, and practicing that on my own, I just sort of used an example uh, to somewhat help me structure. So I mean, definitely, you know, nothing's there's no better teacher than a good book, or a bad book.
2: Well, and it sounds like, yeah.
0: Yeah, I got something to uh, partly answer that. Um, When Tom and I started on The Glass Inferno, uh, we had absolutely no idea how to go about writing a major uh, thriller novel. So what I did, I sat down with Arthur Haley's airport and I deconstructed it chapter by chapter, scene by scene, so I, I could follow it exactly how he did it. It's not that we used it as a template, it's that... That's how it was done.
2: In, in terms of plot?
0: In terms, in terms of, of plot, yeah. In, in terms, in terms, of, terms of plot and structure, primarily. Oh, oh. Uh, the only other thing I had to, to offer on that was uh, there's a, a cheat way of uh, writing novels and uh, it's called the what if way. Uh, the Dark Beyond the Stars, uh, what if they went out looking for life and there wasn't any? So the only life there was, was on board the ship. Uh, what if, uh, and this, is, this may be more truth than fiction, uh, what if Neanderthals are still living today? Um, considering how the human race uh, handles anything that looks different, uh, they would have to be underground. And there were th- what, what finished it off is there are two types of Neanderthals. There were the hairy, uh, hairy, short-limbed roots that lived in uh, France during the Ice Age and then, and then there was a much more gracile uh, branch that lived down in Yugoslavia and Israel. And uh, they were almost indistinguishable from modern man. And what if they were still around? take it from there. If they were still around they'd be damn careful to only interbreed with each other. Otherwise they'd be producing mules and be a dead end. Uh, The other thing is uh, there was some uh, argument by anthropologists that um, uh, Neanderthal did not have the power of speech and I kept wondering Mm. what might they have had instead? And um, uh, the answer is images in the mind. The history of the whole race would be in the mind. Uh, if they went on a hunting trip and they came back, you could see the images in your own head okay. of what they uh. had done. And I carried that for one of the characters who, when. when uh, now, what uh, book is this in? Uh, this is Waiting. Oh, okay. And they burgle one of the, uh, our hero burgles one of the uh, apartments of this one woman who's a member of the other people. And all of the, uh, she has a wall covered with CDs and they're all voice because they can't sing. Uh, she's trying to knit a sweater and she can't do it. The colors go all over the map, there is no sense of color there. Uh, they could not make cave paintings like uh, Homo sapiens could. And uh, it it all springs from, what if they were still around? And you work on that, you start thinking of that and making variations on a theme. Uh, And that's a nice way of doing it.
2: Um, Well, Well, that's sort of the root of I mean, you could say that's the root of all science fiction in a way. Oh, is, yeah, uh, a, a good
0: deal of it, yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> As opposed to...
0: I mean, if it wasn't for H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, most of science fiction wouldn't exist.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's a, it's about, uh, you know, sort of speculating, a what if this happened, yeah, what if right. that? Now, you know, you talk about Crichton. It sounds to me like your, uh, your editors for Subterraneans did... You the same favor that uh, somebody did to Michael Crichton, which was tell them they're not a science fiction writer, and so they end up uh, being quite successful.
1: And it, it, was it was done. It was done. It was purposefully. I mean, it <laughs> was. It was not. I mean, they weren't even subtle about it. But Lou Aronica was the person who bought ah. uh, Subterranean. Uh, who those don't? Lou Aronica, a very famous editor in the sci-fi fantasy field, and and he wanted to try a way of mainstreaming science fiction, and he decided to experiment with. Subtraining and successive novels to, to see if you can't mainstream science fiction,
2: and to some extent it worked. It, worked, it certainly yeah. worked for you. Oh, definitely. Huh. Very interesting. <clears throat> now, what do you th- you think? There's a structural difference in a thriller. I mean, both of you talk about thrillers as if we all know what a thriller is. I mean, we sort of know what a a horror novel is. We sort of know what a a, a romantic comedy is. We sort of know, but what's a thriller? how do you when you say you write thrillers right and other stuff too what's what's the what makes a, what makes a novel a thriller just a lot of thrilling shit going on, or <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm co-president. I'm co-president with the International Thriller well, Writers, right. you so you think I could answer that? <laughs> uh, and that's been the first year we started that organization was struggling to define what a thriller is because you know certain science fiction novels could be considered thrillers, certain mystery novels can be considered thrillers. There's romantic suspense which could be considered a thriller. So you know, how do you classify a thriller in and of itself?
2: Now, I mean, in a sense, it's just a publishing category, but in another sense. I mean, it, it, I think for a writer, it must have an actual uh, structural... Reality to it, uh, to some extent.
1: Well, David Morrell, who uh, founded the organization, uh, in, in just a nutshell, he's got a long description of what he considers to be the definition of a thriller. But to, to boil it down to it, it's any novel it's, whose main goal is to get your pulse pounding, uh, not necessarily to solve the mystery, but to basically just get that, that that get that you know sweat going, the heart pounding, the page turning. If if your goal of writing is to do that, then you're writing a thriller.
2: So, in other words, the the. the the pulse pounding doesn't come. It's not in anticipation or at the end. It has to be. It has to
1: be embedded in the work throughout the entire novel. Throughout the novel, right? Because I mean, you want that page turning. You want from the time you read that first line, that first paragraph, that first page. You don't want that person to go to sleep until they've turned that last page. You know, that's what you really want to do. Is my goal? I love getting email from people that said, "I hate you. I was up till like four o'clock in the morning. I missed my appointment. You owe me money."
2: <laughs> would so. you
0: say the same or <laughs> uh pretty much
2: um i mean you did it with uh haley right what you did you did it but you deconstructed haley so yes
0: um well i i think most most thrillers mo- most of them that i know of uh you you start with a simple idea a simple theme and then you it's knit one pull two you begin to think more and more what is involved, what would happen if you take uh, the, Bourne, uh, the Bourne series, uh, Ludlin, you have a, uh, a guy who has been developed by military science as a weapon, uh, then what happens if he goes rogue? Right. Uh, what would he be most interested in? He'd be interested in in the hell is he? And uh, again, that's uh, that's a simple knit one, pearl too two. Um, I did a book, I think it's out there, uh, called The Donor. And uh, the idea was uh, organ transplants. Uh, there are people who will sell their kidneys or <laughs> to their liver, et cetera. Well, what if you take the richest man, a, a very, very rich man, uh, you have to the organs have to be compatible with your body and you take organ re- anti-rejection uh, uh, medicine to keep you from rejecting the organ, etc. cetera. Uh, <laughs> that's why uh, a twin would be the perfect uh, own donor uh, for you if something mm-hmm. went wrong with your kidney, etc. A twin?
2: Hmm? Twin. Would be? twin. A oh, a twin, okay. A twin, yeah. yeah. yeah twin.
0: Uh, what, would, uh, what would happen if a kid has been to the hospital a couple of times, uh, is in another hospital where it's, it's, he was in a uh, phony accident and they caught him away to the other hospital and the other hospital he is aware and listens and finds out they're gonna kill him because they need the final organ transplant, they need the heart and the lungs And this is a very wealthy man. And this one kid is a kid who (coughs) is a perfect genetic match. And Mm -hmm. he gets the kid and he raises him. Mm -hmm. So the kid acts as an organ bank without realizing it. And then gets away. And uh, when he finally ends up at uh, San Francisco Municipal A doctor looks at all his various scars and tells the kid, do you realize that you've been harvested? (laughs) (laughs) That's the first the kid knew. The rest of the story comes who finds who first, because the very wealthy man is looking for the kid, and the kid is looking for the very wealthy man Mm -hmm. who's trying to kill him. And that's the the major plot of the story, and that's where everything springs from. That's the dynamic of the uh, story. a long time ago, uh, old time fan, uh, Wilson Tucker, Bob Tucker, uh, when he was teaching me how to write and everything, he said, Frank, mysteries are very easy. This is when mysteries were shorter. He said, it's 30,000 words of you chase me and 30,000 words of I chase you. <laughs> and um, he was more right than wrong. Uh, that's what it frequently comes down to in uh, uh, the Bourne uh, Ultimatum, that's almost exactly what it is. Uh, the uh, uh, government figures are trying to find uh, the uh, escapee, so to speak, and he's trying to find them. Right. And uh, it works very well. It's, uh, it's a cheat yeah. way, uh, C-H-E-A-T, it's a cheap re- cheat way of writing a story, but it's very effective. It works very well. Kat.
1: Well, as I've been listening
3: about the difference between um, fiction and like, the specific thriller genre, it seems like what if is the essential question to fiction. When you plug it into outside of the realm of reality, it becomes science fiction. You're
0: going to have to translate for me. I can't hear. Yeah. <clears throat> with
3: it, it seems with the thriller genre,
1: that tension of not only what if, but that
3: that chase between I chase you and you chase me. How do you work with that dynamic, that tension, to build it to the point where the where the reader can't stop turning the pages?
2: Well, you said that one. I mean, you said you threw another body in the window, right? Or uh, so? Well, there's Lester
1: Dent who wrote the Doc Savage series you're probably familiar with it. Kenneth Rope under the pen name Kenneth Robeson once had a he had a comment that I just love and I always quote this never kill your character the same way twice uh, <laughs> you know it's fine to shoot people but you don't want to keep shooting people you know what's a good garroting or a good you know, stabbing you know never pass up that you know get some variety going but uh, Alfred Hitchcock also had a good example of, of how to create that, that tension, and he used an example between surprise and suspense when defining mostly about movies. So, you know, you have two characters sitting in a diner. They're having a casual conversation. The camera panned down. It sees a bomb ticking underneath there. Um I get that wrong. Surprise, basically, the definition is two people are talking, having conversations. It's talking about like, you know, what are you having for dinner? What are you having for dessert? And the bomb explodes. and Everybody in the audience jumps and screams because it startled them. That's surprise. Suspense is another avenue of, of uh drama and that's where in this case same situation, two characters are talking, having a conversation, the camera pans down. This time you see the bomb, you see the timer ticking down, you go back to that conversation, they're continuing to talk about the creme brulee they ordered for dessert, but now the audience is going, Oh my god, get out of there. Don't order the creme brulee, it's gonna kill you. Um, so that's, that's, that, that's suspense. And a good novel should have a variety of suspense and a variety of, of surprise. Sup- suspense actually is, is a stronger emotional response uh, than surprise. But you do want to mix it up. You don't want everything to be suspense. You don't want everything to be surprise. You should, should vary that up a little bit. Um, so you know, if, you can, if you can mix that up, that's a great way of, of really keeping that page's, pages turning.
0: Yeah, uh, some of the old pulp writers uh, had formulas that they used, and uh, the one. Some, I mo- most,
2: you mean? Almost <laughs> all. <laughs> uh,
0: the one I'm most fond of was uh, Max Brand's, and Max Brand's idea for a story was, when the good guy turns bad and the bad guy turns good. <laughs> and if you think that think about that for a moment, there's any number of variations that you can get from that.
2: Well, that's interesting. Now Bo I know that you've done a novelization. Yes. Have you have you ever done that, Frank? What? Novelizations, where you you it's a backward I've done it myself, I've done it several. It's a backward kind of writing. It's where you take a, a movie script that's already been done and you fluff it out into a novel. If, what was your experience with that?
1: Oh Well, I, so I, don't know, I wrote Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the novelization oh. to that, the last, last Indiana Jones movie. Um, it was a challenge because you know you got the story. But uh, to me, I think a short story makes a great movie. Um, and it, but I think it's hard to make a novel into a movie because there's so much content and then trying to boil it down into a two-hour film is really difficult So a lot of things end up on the cutting room floor. And so when you're giving a script and you want to turn it into a novel, you have to expand it. Um, which was a challenge when dealing with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Um, you know, they were, you got to stick to the script. Don't stray from the script. Um, you know, at one point I was reading the script and, and we never find out how Indiana Jones' father died. And I thought, well, if I'm going to have a scene where I'm writing from Indiana Jones' perspective, I'm in his head, I'm writing the scene where he's introspective about his father, yet at no point is he going to think of how his father died. That seems weird to me. You know, it's going to reflect on how he's responding to that. Did, <coughs> did his father die a lingering death? Was it a horrible death? Was it a sudden death? Did he die peacefully? How he died was going to impact on how Indiana Jones was going to react. And so I sent David Kept, the writer, a note, or actually called him. I said, you know, can I expand on how his father died? Do you have, do you have any idea how his father died? And David Kept said, you know, we discussed that and Stephen would prefer that we don't reveal that. I said, well, you know, from a, I can understand that from maybe from a movie perspective, but from a book, it's not going to work. I really need to, to do that. Now, maybe we can talk about that and decide on how he died. And so we did that. We had a conversation, decided how his father died, which, by the way, was he was sitting on his chair smoking his pipe by the, by the fire, and he just expired peacefully. Um, <laughs> And so I was just going to write it. nothing dramatic, nothing you know, earth-shattering, changing the history of Indiana Jones or anything. And uh, so I went back and I was starting to work on the novel, and I got a call about two weeks later from David Kep saying, you know, I just happened to mention that to Stephen, and he would prefer that you didn't do that. So that was just like one question I had after reading the script, and I had about like 55 questions I really wanted to sort of address <laughs> with David Kep. Like the chase scene made absolutely no sense in the script, by the way. And I asked David Kep that. Said, this chase scene makes no sense. You have weapons that disappear here and they reappear here. And people are changing vehicles that don't make any sense because they're here and here. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. They storyboard that. And, you know, they'll, they'll figure that out on set. It's okay. Well, can I see those storyboards? No. <laughs> then how am I going to make sure what I match is matching the screen? Oh, you just, you know, just work with it. All right. <laughs> So uh, I'm looking at these other, f- you know, 54 questions I have for them. I'm thinking, well, I already got burned on this one question. So <laughs> I thought, well, I'm going to just, you know, do follow that procedure of, you know, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. And I'm just going to write everything I really want to do to pad this story out and ex- answer things that are answered. And I'll just turn it in and hope for the best. And and there's only one thing that they want to change after I turned in the manuscript. There's just one small thing that they said, no, let's not do that. So I had to take that p- one part out. But otherwise, they were pretty, pretty easy.
2: Yeah. What about you? You've done scripts as well. You've done actual film scripts. But anyway, what were you going to say?
0: Okay, uh, to talk about scripts for a moment. Uh, um, I did a couple of scripts for uh, Coppola, and what I learned was never do it again. <laughs> but uh, um, We'd all love to learn that. Yeah, right. We'll have to learn that about a lot of things. But... Um, Coppola said, uh, you know, if you're gonna, uh, he was interested in, the, in me writing a script based on uh, The Dark Beyond the Stars. And, um, and so what you go through is, first of all, you mark the real high points, so that you, you've got a list of all, all the real high points in the story. Everything else becomes connective tissue. Um, that's one way of doing it. At, uh, it's
2: called a beat script, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you really want, well, uh, a couple of ways of telling script. Uh, one of the one of one of the uh, one of the stories has had more movies made from it than anything else, using the same story. I'm not talking about James Bond, the Tarzan, or Sherlock Holmes. Uh, it's Oliver Twist. And Oliver Twist has something like five major movies made from it. And every single one of them is different. Some of them were BBC miniseries that would run (coughs) 350 minutes. uh, Probably one of the best ones uh, starring Alec Guinness as uh, Fagan. And um, God, I forget who played Bill Sykes. But... um, um, that one ran something like 126 minutes. Well, both of them and all the ones in between, there's there's another uh, BBC thing and a couple of others, they all have basic things in common. Uh, it's like if Coppola was to go through and hit, hit the high points, all of them hit the high points, the same high points, mm-hmm. except uh, there's a couple of, uh, couple of omissions. Uh, the most glaring omission is uh, Oliver's half-brother. And some of them utilize Oliver's half-brother as another villain along with Sykes. Others forget him completely. Um, the most satisfying uh, version of Oliver, oddly enough, was the musical Oliver. Uh, which had a great, great track, but, in a, but it, it really takes liberties. In all of the other movies, Fagin is a uh, villain. In Oliver, Fagin is a, a comic. Mm. It's played by Ron Moody as a uh, comedian. In, uh, uh, also in Oliver and a couple of the others, The Artful Dodger is Oliver's friend. But in some of them, the art for Dodge, Dodger is not his friend. The art for Dodger is a criminal as well. well. Um, I would suggest if you're, uh, uh, if you're interested in uh, screenwriting and storytelling, uh, granted, I, I have a proprietary interest too. I'm fond of the screenwriter, et cetera. Uh, Lance Black's screenplay for Milk. Uh, if you read it, read it as a story and uh, you, you, you'll begin to see all the, all the high points. You'll be in to rec- recognize the connective tissue, the whole shot. Uh, it's an excellent, excellent uh, screenplay t- to read, to study. Uh, he uses what is frequently used in the uh, story, uh, of a um, uh, framing device. Mm-hmm. Like uh, most of the Sherlock Holmes stories use a framing device. It's, um, uh, what's the doctor's name? It's, it's Watson. Watson. Watson? Watson. Mm-hmm. Watson. It's Watson who tells the story. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, the Milk script, it's Harvey sitting at a microphone who frames the story, the beginning and the end. Right. Um It's, it's a, a, a masterful thing to study. I read, um, I read David Franzoni's script, which seemed like about twice as long and filled full of errors, even though he did make much more of a hero of me. Um, <laughs> if you'd read Franzoni's script, you, you'd realize this is a guy who did Gladiator, which was a very famous film. He's a very successful screenwriter. And when it, when it came to writing a screenplay on Harvey, complete mess, complete failure. Hmm.
2: Um, well, there's a difference in, a, also in a bow pick, you have a, uh, you're restricted in certain ways. It seems like you can't, you know. I mean, there are, it seems like another restriction you're talking about, like you wanna you want to get at something in Indiana Jones's past, but you're dealing with a franchise character here. You're not dealing with Oliver Twist, or even. You're dealing with a—he's still a moneymaker. So you right. know that's a hard one. I did I did some um, uh, some stuff for Lucas uh, um, novels about Boba Fett, who's one of the you know. I don't know, some kind of killer or something. And, uh, I didn't. They didn't do very well. But, um, but uh, you know, everything that went through this guy's mind had to be had to be vetted by the office because this was this this was more valuable than a living person. This is a franchise-created character that they. Controlled everything about. It It's kind of creepy, in, in you
1: know. That was it's the one thing that they had me cut out of the novel that I wrote was that at the end of the novel. You know, there was the one of the the movie ongoing things about the movie was Mutt going to school. You know, you know why did Mutt quit school? And you know his father initially saying don't worry about a kid, but once he finds out that he's actually his son, it's like you're going to school. So at the end, where they're at, they're having the, the wedding at at uh, the alma mater of uh, where a. Uh, Indiana Jones teaches. I thought wouldn't it be cool if Mutt's going to a school and he's fretting during a, the point of view seeing them writing at the other novel that he's going to have to take classes with his father. And they didn't want that because they didn't want to pin down Mutt of having to be at a specific school in case they wanted to spin off a franchise movie. Well, they didn't want to have to have anything tied down to have to explain well, the book said he was here. Now we have to clear it in the in the this movie we're doing in the future. So they said we don't want to tie, don't tie it, don't tie anything down at the end. So we leave everything a little bit open in case we want to spin th- something off or not.
0: It does seem like yeah. One other thing, yeah. I, I'm sorry, I, I don't like to interrupt anybody, but just very briefly, uh, one of the primary differences between prose and film is that in film you cannot tell the viewer what the character is thinking. In prose, you can. Now, there are various ways of getting around that. One is by voiceover, and uh, the other is a rather clever way that Black handled it in milk, and that's Harvey had a microphone. And he's telling you what he thinks. But uh, under ordinary, uh, ordinary structure, uh, it's very difficult to get around that. Um, very difficult. Yeah, you're, you're th- there's a restriction there. On the other hand, you have the advantage of most of your description you can uh, ditch. And in fact, if you read most scripts, there's uh, very little description, just a hint, knowing that uh, the director and the set designer and everybody else, including the appearance of the actors, etc., is gonna take care of all of your description. Which eliminates two-thirds of a lot of novels. So would.
2: Well, it seems like uh, you also hit on one of the main things, which is that a lot of times a, a script is basically a short story because you can't, ta- you can't do a whole novel. And, and so what you're trying to do, I know when I do a novelization, it's like in many ways I think I'm taking something that's a perfect form in a way because I, I like film scripts. I like the idea that when you get to page 100, you're done. You know, and and uh, you know, no, you cheated, you. but then then uh, you know you you have to take this and you have to pan it out. So in other words, you're in many ways to me, you, although you're making something that's more readable to people. Actually, if you look at it compared with the original film script, it's it's it, to me it's less readable because it's yeah, it's been boogered I, up. A I little
1: think bit. Uh, in regards to what Frank was saying was that. Uh, you know, the movie sets all your high points. Right. And w- when you're novelizing it, you're basically expanding on that connective tissue. You're just right. really filling out that connective tissue, which sometimes is a rather thin in a film. In the novelization, you're trying to really fill in some gaps and add things and you know, right. build some things in that connective tissue because you have to hit those main points in that novelization.
2: And it does feel to me as a writer sometimes you're you're actually missing something uh, up. You know,
0: you're <laughs> one more addition. Uh, if you had wanted to study the difference between film and prose, uh, there's a very easy and simple way to do it. Uh, read the Harry Potter books and watch the movies.
2: Why?
3: Wow. <laughs> the, <laughs> <leave out some laughs> the Harry
0: Potter books can run up to six, seven hundred pages. A movie oh. takes hundred and fifty minutes.
2: <laughs> well, you know, like you were saying, you you who was it, Marion Zimmer Bradley, mm-hmm. told you, said you're not a short story writer. Right. And you you believe that. Oh, yeah. You think that's true. Well, what what was she really saying?
1: Well, I think that this short fiction that I turned in was basically like you know, she felt there was a whole novel in there. She thought you could take this short fiction I really think this should be a novel is what she said. You know, mm-hmm. I really love this character. I love the way you create her. I want to know everything about her past, future, and present. This really needs to be turned into a novel is what she was telling me to do. Or for just kindly rejecting me I don't know One, for those that want to just again we're talking about fiction writing and in, in general and for those that are interested did anybody know the difference between non can define the difference between non-fiction and fiction what what the goal is between those two things anyone want to guess Cat. Close, but not right. Anybody else want to guess? (laughs) Anybody else want to define fiction versus nonfiction? No. No? That's, that's, no, no. More guesses. Okay, I'll tell you. The difference, your goal when you're writing nonfiction is, to, like you were saying, is to pass out facts, to give out information. Your goal is to give information to your reader. Your goal when you're writing fiction is to pass on emotion to your reader. Your main goal when you're writing fiction is not necessarily to give out facts, whether they're true or stranger than fiction or not true because many there's many fiction novels that have elements of truth in them but you know they're not. Your main goal when you're writing fiction is to transmit emotion. And that's what I think whenever you're writing fiction that's your main goal is to, to really evoke an emotional response out of that reader uh, rather than getting a, a factual information to that reader.
2: I don't believe that. uh, No, but it seems like there's a lot of nonfiction that, I mean, look at somebody like, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Barry Lopez, or, uh, uh, you know, there are people who write very, to me, very emotional very uh, nonfiction, it just doesn't have a story, it can even have a character, I don't
1: know. But I think the main goal of, let's say, like, uh, uh, Devil in a White City, it's nonfiction, about the... uh, uh, the World Fair in, in Chicago. Uh, you know, the goal is to tell about this murder mystery, and it's it's very exciting. It's very thrilling if you ever read that. But it, basically, the main goal is to tell the story of the of who this person was and what happened to them. So you can tell you can tell a nonfiction story in a very thrilling and emotional manner. But the main goal, I still think, is to to be accurate to that world. I think they that writer wanted to create what the World Fair really was like, and to reveal about this murder and who really possibly did this murder. But he just tells it in a very exciting manner.
2: The, the nonfiction might deal with, with an emotional subject, right? And and so you get emotion from that. But <coughs> well, it seems to me that the the difference is that there's a actual uh, there's a there's a sort of a Mr. Uh, John Gardner talked about what he called the dream of fiction or the narrative dream, that where you're actually uh, putting. And maybe it's another way of saying you're putting an emotional investment in it, but the reader actually begins to walk in the steps of the character, Mm -hmm. and not just, you know, a lot of times nonfiction can kind of hover overhead and you look at all this stuff, but you're not, you don't have your feet on the ground in that way. That would seem, I mean, what what nonfiction do you do? Do you ever... um, I don't know how you have time to do all you do at this point. I, no,
1: I haven't written nonfiction. I, I, back before I actually was being published, it's you know it's some short uh, mm. articles in newspapers about veterinary care, but <laughs> they really weren't creating an emotional response necessarily. <laughs> Mostly, get your cat spayed and neutered.
2: <laughs> we have another question, another comment for our authors.
3: Right. <laughs> right.
0: Um, going back to uh, nonfiction, uh, there was a uh, old uh, agent, uh, primarily in the science fiction field, but he handled everything. Uh, named Scott Meredith, he was everybody's uh-huh. agent.
2: Right.
0: And uh, when it came to nonfiction, uh, Meredith had a very simple uh, suggestion. Nonfiction fiction breaks into three parts. A, first you tell the reader what you're going to say. Then you say it. And at the end of it, you tell them what you said. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's as good as anything I know. How many times have you picked up an article and you realize, Jesus, you're not gonna read all 30 pages of the article in vanity first, so you turn to the last page?
2: Yeah,
3: comment. Okay. I know, Jim, that your next published work is going to be your first foray into the world of young adult fiction. My question is, what has made you want to go in that direction? And also, Frank, have you ever written for a young audience?
1: Should sure. I start first? Um, it's one of those things, I always get myself in trouble for t- talking to my editor. I really have to stop doing that. Um, <laughs> Because we were sitting at uh, Lisa Kusch at HarperCollins, okay. and I was sitting at lunch one time uh, just over this past summer, not – yeah, last summer. And uh, she asked me the question I often get asked on the road is, again, as a veterinarian, why don't you write about a veterinarian? And my short answer is not enough people die in those James Herriot novels. I want to kill a lot of people. <laughs> and um, – she goes, but now, you know, my, my real answer was that I was working 8 to 12 hours as a veterinarian. I didn't necessarily want to go home and write about a veterinarian. But now that I don't practice full time, I, th- you know, I was talking to her. I thought it would sort of be cool to write a, you know, from a perspective of a veterinarian. And, you know, maybe she should have a thrilling it's, it's story or something. Uh, and so then about three months later, I get this call from her basically, you know, from my editor, from my agent basically saying, did you pitch another story to your agent? <laughs> I mean, your editor I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, she's, she's got an offer on the table for some veterinary thread thriller I go, what so it sort of came about that same way is that i was you know just playing with the idea of, of basically you know you know what if harry potter goes prehistoric you know it's you know, narnia with dinosaurs you know uh what, what what might happen and and uh you know based upon that i ended up sort of pitching this idea of this uh these kids that are transported back in time into this uh lost civil where there's a whole bunch of lost civilizations mayans egyptians uh Azarians, uh sumerians but they're all sort of clumped together in this one spot, surrounded by dinosaurs. You know, what might happen? Uh, so sort of an archaeological adventure in the past with these kids. So.
0: This,
2: just another Aztec, Assyrian surrounded by dinosaurs. No? Yeah, just one of those. <laughs> We've all seen it. <laughs> well, have you done any kid stuff? Any what? Stuff for kids. You know, people under sixty.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once a long, long time ago, I was living in the Haight-Ashbury. My niece was about, oh, seven, eight years old, and there was a guy in the Haight who was drawing uh, uh, paintings, very good ones, of uh boarded cows. So I wrote her See? a novel, uh, not a novel, a short story based upon these beautiful checkerboarded cows, and that's all I can tell you. I don't remember, thankfully, anything. <laughs> 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 Does anybody,
1: anybody besides me read the, the old Danny Dunn mysteries, uh, the little kids a uh, you know, group of kids that are solving crimes often they have a very science fiction element to it they were like looking for Loch Ness Monster one time there. so a lot of stuff like that so that's where my story sort of came about Is that I even have a character in Sandstorm called uh, Danny Dunn because I was just borrowed him <laughs> and stuck him in my novel so I like sort of, some of these homages to the, to the kids, the books that sort of stimulated me to want to write and want to read uh, that was the very first set of novels I ever read with the Danny Dunn mysteries and uh, uh, so I just wanted to one of the reasons I wanted to do this young adult series is again just try to keep that uh, that young audience reading since they're you know we're, we're losing a lot of them to television and internet and all the other video games and things that can distract them from wanting to read which I think is a I think reading there's no there's no better way of stimulating the imagination and stimulating it and just intelligence in general is you need to you need to read
2: now do you use a framing device with uh, kids books or or how do you like this this kid's book is it told by one of the kids or is it told as it happens or as it's remembered? How do you go about
1: it? No, it's it's set in real time. Um, yeah, I don't I don't necessarily dumb down my writing for the young adult. I think that, you know I write just, just very similar. It's just very a bit more linear, in that it's all told from one perspective. Whereas my my fantasies and my thrillers are multiple perspective. I hop heads to a bunch of different people, but in this is just it's just the one the one boy who I stay in his perspective. Yeah, yeah that's one way of
2: simplifying it. I yep. guess. Yeah. Anybody else with a comment or a question for our readers? I had a Yo. For Mr.
3: Um, I was wondering uh, which of the writers, when you were a fan, inspired you and, and convinced you that you could uh, enter this field and made you want to become a writer.
2: Is that for Frank or Jim? Frank. Yeah. What writers, when you were a fan, uh, made, uh, inspired you to think? Well, maybe I should. Right.
0: Oh hell Uh, That's easy (coughs) Um, I had a number of favorite writers Uh, Bob Heinlein was certainly at the head of the list Uh, If I was going to pattern myself um, After anybody it would have been Heinlein Uh, I also liked, you'll forgive me for saying this In fantasy I liked Hubbard a lot I thought Hubbard was a really good fantasy writer. Uh, I also liked a lot of Jack Williamson. Uh, Bradbury. Bradbury was a little bit too literary for me. (laughs) But uh, uh, when I got older, I I could see what Bradbury was doing and I liked him a lot better then. Um, (coughs) Who else? Sturgeon. Uh, Sturgeon was uh, what I consider to be an original thinker. Um, speaking of original thinking, uh, one thing that hasn't been commented on here is the, uh, the mental setup and imagination of uh, science fiction writers, almost all of whom I would give them at least a B plus, but the one who got an e- a-, 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 a, plus was uh, Arthur C. Clarke. And uh, I had met, uh, I was always aware of Clarke. Um, I did a uh, dialogue for Playboy between Arthur Clark and Alan Watts. And uh, Clark was in New York staying at the Chelsea Hotel and um, mm-hmm. Alan and I caught a plane and we spent three days with uh, Uh, Clark and for the first, uh, for the first day they are sniping at each other because Clark was a scientist and uh, uh, Alan was a, uh, uh, you know, off in the wild blue yonder whatever you want to call it. (laughs) The second day uh, they finally figured out that hey Playboy's picking up all the bills (laughs) and it was then that uh, Alan came through with flying colors because he knew all the best restaurants in town. And we abandoned the automat for, uh, you know, the better restaurants. But um, uh, what fascinated me about Clark was, well, he was a fan of gadgets, minor, but it was the way he thought. And uh, he he was always posing uh, little, uh, brain teasers to me, like uh, what was the value of the horse collar? Well, the value of the horse collar was, a, was the first time a beast of burden could pull more than at its own weight without strangling itself. Uh, what was the value of a... Uh, uh, what was the value of spectacles? Uh, because uh, they could afford the scholars of the time A longer lifetime in scholarship Mm -hmm. before their eyes gave out. Um, The one thing that really, really, really struck me was um, what is the one thing a fish could never conceive of? And it was not only the question, it was the application, and the answer is fire. And uh, you of us on this little planet and then you think of all the variations on a theme out there and you realize that we're pretty much like the fish in the uh, pond. Uh, last thing uh, he mentioned, which I had not known about, uh, the first actual functioning computer, uh, I think it was called the Akitha computer, was discovered by uh, skin divers off the Grecian coast, and they came up with this uh, mass of bronze that nobody could figure out what the hell it was. And it sat in the back of the Athens Museum until uh, a couple of scientists saw it in the 1950s and figured out that hey, it's a computer. And it is such a simple computer, the idea, uh, you could buy a toy at one time that was a series of reels. And you turn the first reel 100 times, and the next reel turns 50, and the next reel turns 20, and the last reel turns once. And that was the basis of the uh, Kithra computer and represented a degree of mechanical complexity that the human race was not to achieve again until the invention of the grandfather clock. That was the way Clark thought. And I don't know any other science fiction writer who thought quite like that, who could see the purpose of things which apparently had no purpose. Uh, One minor, one minor, God, shut me up, will you? (laughs) Uh, One minor thing uh, Clark had a little. uh, um, what do they call it, coherent light? Laser. laser. He had a little laser projector and we stood up on the seventh floor of the Chelsea and we, he, could, uh, he could shine that laser down on the sidewalk where there was this little circle of light the size of a quarter and he could move it around and a matron saw it and carefully avoided it. A drunk tried to dance with it. <laughs> But uh, it, it was this kind of a, approach to things that I, I really admired about the man, and I, I was uh, very, very sorry to see him go.
2: That's an interesting uh, note. We probably better end, but that's a good note to end on, which is tremendous says that science fiction is not all technique and process, that there's a, a vision, you know, that, uh, that drives the best of it. But then you have to know the techniques and you have to know the process. And
0: uh, uh, I'll add one thing to that and to any potential science fiction writers in the crowd or even readers for that matter, uh, there's one thing that we represent. Above starving to death at a penny a word, <laughs> um, we represent the imagination of the human race. And that's yeah. it. And that's something very, very important. And, you know, to an extent, we should all be very proud of ourselves for either our own professions or our own hobbies. We're at the top of the list, fella. How is that?